0: it's tech biter worldwide i'm bill Blynn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes that's because we leave out the sports most of the jingles the weather and the commercials podcast number 405 for august 10th 2014 this week nasty russian hackers have your password Or maybe is all this just a ploy to sell a monitoring service? Zara's latest web designer program looks like a big hit. Lightroom works with modern pictures, but also with antiques. And in short circuits, thumb drives turn out to be a lot more rugged than I thought. Microsoft sues Samsung. And it appears that Android is about to own the smartphone market. So there it was in the New York Times. Russian hackers have one billion of our passwords. Do they have yours? The broadcast news accounts have been sufficiently breathless to cause panic. But look at it this way. There are three billion internet users. One billion passwords have been stolen. So that must mean one-third of all internet users are at risk. Actually, it doesn't. But that doesn't mean you should relax either. But in two words, don't panic the story has been a bit overblown. First, here's why one-third of internet users aren't necessarily at risk. There are three billion users, and each user will have credentials for a variety of online stores, banks, and services. According to LastPass, I have 398 sets of credentials stored. Now, probably that's a few more than most people, but let's say the average person has just Fifty sets of credentials. So three million times 50 is 150 million. The hackers have one million passwords. That's one in 150, not one in three. But as I said, don't be complacent. If you haven't changed your critical passwords recently, and by critical I mean those for any service that has anything to do with money, identity, or medical records, well now would be a pretty good time to do it. And make sure you don't use the same set of credentials... For more than one of those critical sites. Next week's program will be all about identity theft that was already planned, so we'll look at the entire topic in more depth then. Hold Security in Milwaukee was responsible for finding evidence of the break-in, but so far the company has provided very little information about companies whose sites might have been hacked. Many of those sites are apparently still vulnerable. According to the story in the Times, which quoted the founder of Hold Security, Alex Holden, hackers did not just target U.S. companies, they targeted any website they could get, ranging from Fortune 500 companies to very small websites. What Holden and the Times seemed careful not to say is that those who have all these passwords didn't obtain them from large operations like Google, for example, or Facebook, but they did it by accumulating stolen credentials that have been stolen by what appear to be little more than script kiddies the people who buy off-the-shelf malware and attack individual users. Holden has also been less than forthcoming about any specific sites that might have been attacked, and now, immediately after the announcement, he started offering for $150 to tell you whether your credentials are among those 1 billion records. Okay, so now what? Well, even though this seems to be a lot less frightening than some might like to have us believe, it's still a good idea to change passwords, at least occasionally. Passwords for non-critical sites like greeting cards or newspapers need not be changed because they have little or no value to thieves, but any account that deals with your financial records or medical records should be changed now. And if you haven't yet signed up for a password manager such as LastPass, which is free, or you can pay $15 a year to get some extra features, then you really should do so. LastPass securely stores all of your usernames and passwords in an encrypted file, locally and on LastPass servers be certain to create an extraordinarily strong password for LastPass. It is the only password you'll need to remember, and you'll be able to allow LastPass to create secure passwords for all of your other critical services. By a secure password, I mean something that might be 30 characters long, with a random grouping of letters and numbers and symbols. My last pass password is in a format like this, bang at 666 hippopotamus. And I could remember that or even write down a hint. The hint I would write down in a case like that would be sound at Tishman Animal. Now that translates this way. Sound would remind me of bang. At, of course, is the at sign. Tishman, well, that's 666. It's the address of the Tishman building on 5th Avenue in Manhattan. And animal, hippopotamus. That's my favorite animal. Well, needless to say, that is not my password. Bang would not be a sound I would probably come up with if I happened to have a sound in my password, which I don't. 666 is the actual address of the Tishman building, but I don't use that in any of my passwords either. And hippopotamus, well, that's not really my favorite animal, so it's not in my passwords either. For more information about keeping your identity safe, be sure to check next week's program. It'll be all about identity theft. The phone has become a device for looking at websites. People who own smartphones may not use those phones for all their browsing, but most of them undoubtedly use the phone sometimes to view websites. And those of us who have websites need to begin to think about how those sites appear on smaller screens. Responsive sites examine the hardware they're being displayed on and then modify the code they return to the browser for the best possible result. Easy and fast are two terms that haven't been used to describe the process of creating responsive sites in the past, but Zara may be able to change that. Most commercial website development tools cheat a little bit when it comes to creating a responsive site. Instead of using what are called media query statements that call various cascading stylesheet files, they create a copy of a site and then place it in a subdirectory. Often the directory is named M., Not after 007's old boss, but standing for mobile. And although this technique works, it doesn't create a truly responsive site. Zara's new website designer 10 does, and it does it in a way that just about anybody can use it. Everything is published to the same folder, along with the CSS media query statements you need to ensure that visitors see the right components, As a result, the user of a tablet who opens your site with the screen in portrait mode, but then turns it to landscape mode, will see the site reconfigure itself for the wider screen. Related to responsive sites are what Zara refers to as super sites. These are ideal for a site that contains only a few pages that are all about the same size. The entire site exists as a single page that can scroll vertically or horizontally making it ideal for touch-enabled devices. As implemented by Zara, a Supersite navigates instantly between pages because everything is already loaded. You can also use any of a variety of page animations that have been built with HTML5 and CSS3, so the effects will work with any modern browser. The program also makes it easy to use more than just the standard dozen or so boring web-safe typefaces. It includes the appropriate links to typefaces provided by Google. Sourcing the web fonts from Google will generally cause them to load faster than if you serve them from your own website, and because you don't have to convert text to graphics, search engines can see and index all of your text, and anyone who wants to copy and paste the text from the site can do so. Zara includes a nice selection of plugins and widgets, so you might think the program would take hours to download when you want to install it. Not so. Just the bare bones are included. All of the templates, plugins, widgets, graphics, and such, those will all be downloaded on demand when you need them. After all, there's no point in downloading a hundred or more templates and all their associated code and pictures if you plan to use just three of them. Widgets make it easy to add information from Google Maps, Picasso photo albums and slideshows, and YouTube videos, but there are also widgets that'll help you create forms and content needed for e-commerce sites. A few of these are included in what's called the classic version, but many more come with the premium version. More about the differences and the costs in a little bit. Apple's Retina display is the first of what's called high DPI displays. These high-resolution screens work better if the site designer creates special versions of all graphics. Usually that's not quick, easy, or simple, but Zara handles the task automatically. All you have to do is select a checkbox that tells the program to create the high DPI images. It'll also create all the appropriate code and it names the images properly so that devices that can use the high-res images will use them. So I gave it a try. Now, when reviewing earlier versions of Zara Web Designer, I've created phony websites. My favorite was called Cats and Purple. That was a site for purple cats. This time around, I had time to examine the features or to create some text and pictures for a cute phony site. I could do one or the other, not both. So this review uses one of the sample responsive site templates with just a few minimal modifications. Scrolling through the list of templates, I looked for ones marked with an R, meaning that it's a responsive site. Then double-clicking on the name of the template provides a thumbnail preview so you can figure out what you want. Once I had selected the template, right-clicking and selecting Download All made the template and all of its associated pieces available to me. Next, right-clicking the website thumbnail and selecting Open provided a starting point for the standard site and the mobile site. There are thumbnails for the starter site, individual pages, and add-on pages, widgets, graphics, and icons. My first surprise came when I changed a line of text on the main page. It's not uncommon for applications that create multiple instances of a site for the various browser sizes to require that modifications be made on each instance. But when I switched to the mobile site, the text had already been changed there. In some cases, you may need to reformat the text. For example, the text on the smaller page was actually on two lines, and if you want it on a single line, you might need to reformat the text, make it a little bit smaller. But the text itself is there. And then I started exploring. Check out the images on the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll see the main page that I started with, a couple of photos there and some text. And I started with the standard width view, the one you'd expect to see on a desktop or a notebook computer, and possibly on a large tablet. Adding a line drawing of a cat seemed like a good idea. Doesn't it always seem like a good idea to me to add a cat? But you'll note if you take a look at the TechBiter Worldwide website that the cat graphic obscures some of the text. Now, that's not good. I remembered from an earlier version of Zara Web Designer, though, that there's what's called a Repel setting, and that forces any text that's on a layer below the image to be repelled, so the text wraps around the image. I turned that on, and the text magically wrapped around the image. Then I tried rotating the drawing of the cat. The text responded by wrapping to fit the way the image was positioned once I rotated it. When I opened the mobile version of the site, I was not surprised to find that the cat was not there. I had to drag it out from the gallery, position it, and turn on the repel function, then rotate it. That wasn't surprising, because I added the cat to the existing full-size page, I didn't expect it to be replicated on the mobile page. But then I decided this site might have some visitors who have really wide screens, say 1200 pixels or more wide. So I created a third variant for widescreens. And when I opened the widescreen variant, everything from the standard site, including the cat, had been added to the new variant. The lesson here would be to create one variant first with everything you need then create the copy. So I made some modifications to the images on the page so that they would fit the wider aspect ratio, and then I tried rotating a text box on the page. You might think that rotating a text box would cause it to be converted to a graphic, but check the sample site. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Open that page, try to select the text. You'll find that you can, and that means the text is still text. The test site doesn't contain much additional text, and except for links to the various built-in pages, don't expect the links to work. What will happen though, is that the site will respond properly if you change the width of your browser window. As I continued looking through Zara Web Designer, I found more pluses, and I found a few minuses. Several slideshow widgets are included without additional cost, but they have fairly significant limitations. The one you'll see on the about page on my test site is an accordion slideshow. The show plays automatically, or the user can click one of the vertical tabs to view a specific image. All that's good. The presentation is limited to five images. That's not really unexpected with an accordion presentation, so I don't have a problem there. But the text at the bottom of the instruction panel for the slideshow widget says that it cannot be resized. That is a problem. Or maybe it is. When I tried to implement the widget on the phone size page, it was too wide, and the result on a narrow screen is that you can't see the left edge or the right edge, and I couldn't resize it. Now, realistically, many designers would probably skip the slideshow entirely on a phone. They would probably select one of the images to display, or if it's important to show all of them, put them in a vertical line. So this really isn't a deal breaker. It would be nice though to have a way to resize the widgets. Another oddity, one that I reported to Zara, is that some images in the template have a mouse over effect, and that mouse over effect suggests that clicking should do something. The image you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website shows the mouse hovering beside the image, the image is in full color, and then over the image, the image becomes washed out. Now, if this signaled that something would really happen when the user clicked the image, it'd be okay, but clicking does nothing. Whatever effect has been applied obviously can be turned off. I haven't figured out how to do it yet, but I'm sure it could be. So this isn't really a deal-breaker either, but it sure could be a frustrating puzzle for a new user. I mentioned extras with a premium version, as usual, Zara Web Designer 10 is available in two versions, the basic program called Classic, 90 bucks, and the premium version, $300. If you own a previous version, you would of course expect a lower price for upgrades, and that's what you'll find in the Zara store. If you're considering Zara Web Designer and you do any amount of website design, premium is well worth the extra cost. You'll find a long list of the extra features on the TechBiter Worldwide website. There's also a free 12-month hosting package included. It's kind of interesting. It includes one year of site hosting for no additional charge, up to two gigabytes of server space, domain name registration, and up to five email accounts. So the bottom line for Zara Web Designer 10 is four cats, lots of features, in an easy-to-use website designer. Despite a few minor problems, Zara Web Designer 10 is a pretty impressive application that puts a lot of power in the hands of people who are more comfortable working with words and pictures than with the somewhat arcane HTML5, CSS3, and JavaScript code. The classic version is fine for basic sites, but if you really want to get fancy you're going to want the premium version. Additional details are available on the Zara website. There is a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. <music> Photographers, whether amateurs or professionals, have heard all about the advantages of Adobe Lightroom. About a week ago, Adobe released a new version of Lightroom, 5.6, and the corresponding new version of Camera Raw. The primary additions this time around provided support for several new cameras, so there's really not a lot of news there. At the time, I was using Lightroom to work on some pictures from the 1970s, and then my wife asked me to scan some pictures from the 1940s. I used Lightroom for those, too. Lightroom doesn't have a scanning option, so the first thing you need to do if you're working with older images is have them scanned. Starting with the original negative or slide is the best option, and I've been able to do that with all of my pictures from the 70s. The older pictures existed though only as paper prints. So I started by scanning the images with ViewScan, one of the most versatile scanning applications available. In fact, I have two textbook-sized books that explain how to get the most out of ViewScan. In part, that's because the user interface is a little busy and can be confusing. Still, if you want to get the most out of any scanner, this is the application that'll do it. You'll find a link to the ViewScan website from the TechBiter Worldwide website. ViewScan is compatible with over 2,500 different scanners, and it has versions for both 32- and 64-bit systems, and it's cross-platform, Windows OS 10, and Linux. For the antique images, I followed a rather specific workflow, placed one or more images on the scanner, scanned at 600 dpi, saved it as a TIFF, opened the ganged scan in Photoshop, extracted the individual images, saved those individual images as TIFFs, imported the TIFFs into Lightroom, and then processed normally from that point. Why 600 dpi? Well, I selected that because it would be adequate for the 3x5 images that I was scanning and I scanned them as color images, even though they were monochrome. This does increase the file size a bit, but it gives you more flexibility in later processing. The images from the 1970s all started as slides. I had a scanning service convert them to JPEG images. I would have preferred to have the images saved as TIFFs, but the cost would have been considerably higher, and I decided that first-generation JPEGs from the slides would be acceptable, and I was able to import those directly into Lightroom you'll find some example images on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Sometimes it doesn't take much to significantly improve a photo. So be sure to visit the TechBiter Worldwide website, take a look at some of the images from the Beckley Exhibition Coal Mine in Beckley, West Virginia, the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, and some other images from a mid-1970s vacation trip. Lightroom, of course, is available for Mac users That's not new, but it's more important now that Apple is giving up on Aperture. The Apple product never really had the following that Lightroom developed, in part because it was available only for Macs, and in part because Lightroom is a much more capable application. To help Mac owners make the conversion from Aperture to Lightroom, Adobe has prepared a guide that explains how to migrate images from one application to the other. You can download the PDF document from the Adobe website. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. If you're willing to spend $10 a month, $10 a month, you'll get both the latest Creative Cloud versions of Lightroom and Photoshop. If you prefer a perpetual license, then Lightroom 5 is available that way for $150, that's a new license, or $80 for upgrades. Adobe says it does plan to continue selling Lightroom with a perpetual license, even though all other applications have moved to the Creative Cloud program. That said, $10 a month is a pretty reasonable price for the latest Creative Cloud versions of both Photoshop and Lightroom. Check out the additional details. You'll, of course, find a link on the Techfighter Worldwide website. In short circuits, ever wonder how rugged thumb drives are? I've always considered those little things to be relatively fragile, but maybe it's time to rethink that. They're not good choices for long-term storage of important data, if for no other reason than they're small and easy to lose. The wisdom of the internet tells us that thumb drives relative fragility make them a risk for anybody who relies on them for primary storage. That's what my opinion had been. But certainly, they're no more fragile than floppy disks of old, most of which still work, by the way, if you can find a reader for them, but last weekend convinced me that maybe these little drives are more rugged than I thought. I left a thumb drive in the pocket of a pair of pants. The pants went into the washer, and then into the dryer. After being submerged in water for nearly an hour, and then spending 90 minutes in a hot dryer, the thumb drive appeared. It was sitting at the bottom of the dryer. Not much hope for that one, I thought, but the computer immediately recognized it when I plugged it in. The files were still present and readable. The most fragile parts of a thumb drive are the solder joints. Those are all inside. Bumping or twisting a drive could put needless pressure on the joints. Cracked solder joints will, of course, eventually cause the flash drive to fail. A power surge could cause a flash drive to fail. Likewise, if the computer is attacked by a virus while a flash drive is connected, well, then the flash drive is also going to be subject to attack and may become damaged. These threats are all worth considering. But they're no different. Than the threats that affect any other storage device. Thumb drives are still not the medium I would want to use for backup or any other kind of long-term storage, but at least I know they're a lot less fragile than I thought. Microsoft has jumped into court and is suing Samsung. Yes, I said Microsoft, not Apple. Apple has sued Samsung. Samsung has sued Apple. Apparently, Microsoft's attorneys felt that the other guys were just having all the fun. Now, Microsoft has filed suit against Samsung, claiming that the company has defaulted on a licensing deal that the two signed in 2011. Microsoft complains that Samsung is no longer making timely royalty payments and is refusing to pay interest on past due payments. The agreement three years ago regulated how Samsung could use Microsoft's intellectual property in Android smartphones and tablets. In addition to suing Samsung, Microsoft has even provided the reason it feels Samsung is not keeping its part of the deal. According to Microsoft's Deputy General Counsel and Corporate Vice President David Howard in a post on a Microsoft blog, Samsung decided to stop making royalty payments because its sales of smartphones have quadrupled and that would increase the royalty payments. Samsung predicted it would be successful, he wrote, but no one imagined that their Android smartphone sales would increase this much. And speaking of Android smartphones, with sales of Apple and Microsoft phones falling... And sales of BlackBerry devices all but non-existent, Android has now reached 85% market share in the smartphone market, this according to Strategy Analytics. A total of just over 295 million smartphones were shipped in the previous quarter, and Android's gains came at the expense of iPhones and Windows phones. Android increased market share from slightly over 80% in the second quarter last year to just under 85% in this year's second quarter. Apple's share dropped from more than 13% to less than 12%, and Microsoft dropped from about 4% to less than 3%. BlackBerry took the largest tumble, though, from 2.4% down to just 0.6%. Other brands of smartphones stayed even at about 0.2%. Linda Sui at Strategy Analytics says the global smartphone shipments grew 27% annually from 233 million units in the second quarter of 2013 to 295 million in the second quarter of 2014. But she noted that they estimate worldwide smartphone growth has halved during the past year from 49% a year ago to 27% today. Global smartphone growth in the current quarter is at its lowest level for five years, she said, and there are wide variations by region. For example, Africa and Asia are booming, North America and Europe are maturing. Samsung kept its commanding OEM market share lead at 25.2%, but that figure was significantly lower than last year during the same quarter. Apple had 11.9%, Chinese giant Huawei had 6.8%, and three others rounded out the top of the list, all around 5%. Samsung continues to be the leader in sales, and Neil Moston, the executive director at Strategy Analytics, said he doesn't hold out a lot of hope for Microsoft or Apple. Rival OS vendors are going to have to do something revolutionary to overturn Android's huge lead in smartphone shipments, he said and Apple's push into the big-screen phablet market and Firefox's expansion into the ultra-low-cost smartphone market later this year are the only major threats to Android's continued growth at this stage. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blynn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.